This is episode 242 of the No Pristinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro Studio, also known as the Kitchen Table, here in Los Angeles. Uh, the guest on today's show is story engineer Sean Taylor, uh, who was originally scheduled to be our guest for No Pro Live at the Here Summiton Festival. That would have happened this Sunday. Um, of course, we're not having the Here Summit and Festival this weekend. Um, I'm deeply bummed. I'm recording this on uh, Friday morning. Right now, uh, right now, I, I should be just finishing up Jenny Weinblum. Should be finishing up uh, her keynote. And uh, we should be getting ready to uh, run the single most complicated thing I've ever done in my life. Instead, I'm sitting at my kitchen table, talking into a microphone. We have been turning this um, situation, though, into something kind of cool. We've been recording the podcast using our Discord server, the Here Discord server, uh, which we established about a week and a half ago. And uh, I knew that I wanted to definitely, uh, you know, share share Sean with all of you. Um, Sean uh, talked at last year's Immersive Design Summit. He was on one of the panels uh, that uh, Michael Tower Garver put together, and uh, I was just just blown away and didn't get to spend any time with him and was bummed. And so, like, the first thing I did when I started programming here was, like, I am getting Sean in um, because I wanted to hang out with him. <laughs> because, yeah, I'll abuse my power that way. Uh, if I think someone's cool and I think that someone's coming from a perspective that I just really want to share with everybody. Um, but what we did is we recorded this in the Here Discord. And uh, a little bit about how we're going to be doing that going forward. And we had we did it in front of a live audience. I just did air quotes, but no, it was live. There was a bunch of people listening as we were recording. And then right afterwards, we spilled out into the, the lobby uh, to, to the section of the Discord that's now called The Cafe. Originally called The Peanut Gallery. I've changed it to The Cafe because I miss hanging out in cafes. Um, and uh, the conversation continued there. And we were talking with folks, you know, who've like worked with Tubit Circus and worked with Meow Wolf and... And, uh, you know, you know, Tales by Candlelight and like all sorts of stuff. And it was a great rolling conversation and it was really wonderful to see everyone get energized by it and uh, to be part of that for a moment. So, you know, we may not be seeing each other right now, um, but uh, we are staying connected. And that's something that I wanted to take a moment to encourage all of you to continue to stay connected. We have a number of ways that you can do that. Uh, first is, of course, Everything Immersive, our Facebook group. That's our largest, most unfiltered platform, uh, most un impersonal in a lot of ways. I, I will cop to that. Uh, got about 7,500 people in there all around the world. Uh, lots of people announcing their shows, looking for collaborators, uh, posting mutual aid efforts, articles, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then there, of course, is uh, the No Pro Slack, which is uh, a little more cohesive, threaded conversations, uh, a bit more intimate, fewer people, uh, but more dynamic in terms of people kind of getting to know folks in the neighborhood. Uh, think of it like a, a borough, right? You know, like if 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 everything in the immersive is a city, then uh, then the No Pro Slack is a borough. Um, 
And uh, it, it, with a short attention span, it's about a week's worth of messages stay around because that's how Slack works. Both of those are always open to anyone and everyone all the time. The newest platform we've got is the one that we recorded this session in, and that would be the Here Discord. Um, that one right now, uh, think of that like a neighborhood. There's a lot fewer people in it, and it's got this wonderful voice chat feature. Uh, indeed, there's a section we call the Cafe. Uh, we used to call it the Peanut Gallery, but now we call it the Cafe. Um, I think I may have already said that. I had to re-record because GarageBand uh, shut down, but I didn't start from scratch. Uh, that is, in fact, a theme of this episode. Um, uh, the recording devices are going to keep on failing us this episode, and we're going to keep on picking up in places. We'll get to that in a second. Anyway, uh, the Discord is um, its free to get in right now. Uh, it's open to everybody for like this weekend only. Okay, so starting April 1st, we're going to start... Uh, um, locking it's the wrong term, but uh, if you have a, if you're a badge holder for here, if you're holding onto your badge, uh, you can always request access to the Discord. Uh, if you are a Patreon backer at the two, at the $2 or above level, because we're, we're eliminating the $1, uh, if you have it, if you're grandfathered in at one, you've still got it. But uh, the $2 and above level starting April 1st, uh, you will be able to access the here Discord. Uh, we may offer some special perks to people who go to the higher Patreon levels. Um, you know, things like, you know, consulting hours and whatnot, those can be done on Discord and uh, we'll, we'll create like, you know, there are rooms. Discord gives us options that we've, that we've never looked into before uh, as ways for people to communicate with us. So sort of filtering the communication and, and, and managing stuff. Uh, all of this is in order to make sure that we can keep on making this for you. We know we're gonna face a drop off on the Patreon because people are losing their jobs. And we're in a part of the economy that has been very much hit by what's going on. And I'm, I'm bracing for that impact by, of course, asking everyone who can at the low two and five dollar levels to come on in and help us stretch the net out so that if a few people have to drop down or drop out, the whole thing doesn't break. Because, as you probably know, I am freaking living off this right now and, uh, and, and the math does not work out. <laughs> <laughs> there, it, I live in Los Angeles. The Patreon is under, it's under two thousand dollars. Let alone the the freaking huge amount of money uh, that it costs to live in LA. Even when you can't go out, uh, there's still bills. Anyway, not don't want to dwell too much on that, but it is important, uh, and it is one of the reasons why we are sadly creating this tiered structure. I don't like it, but. It's a, it's a, it's a necessity because I got to do what my landlord wants. Um, okay. So that's enough of that, but patreon.com slash no proscenium is how you help us out there. Again, we're just looking for the twos and the fives, uh, to brace. We've got a couple of new backers this time out, uh, Diana Williams and Eric. Thank you both for joining in. And again, not asking people to throw a bunch, just a little bit, help us, help us spread the distribution here particularly if you're going to be using that stuff, okay? Like, that's that's the way to keep it going. Okay. Um, did the connection thing. Uh, set up the rest of the interview with Sean. All right. You're going... This, this has two parts to it because uh, the recorder conked out in the middle and uh, we had to stop. And unfortunately, Sean was on a really good roll. And because we had a live audience, I let him finish the roll. And then I said, hey, we got we to gotta restart this part of the recording. Um, I have put the section, sadly, it's not the Sean part. Sean just starts. There's this like 
30 seconds of me or something like that, or minute, you know me. Um, I'm going to put that way, way at the tail. So um, if you want to listen after the, the music, you'll hear like what the natural flow of the first part was. But we're going to have the first part. There's going to be a little music break. And then you will hear us do the restart. So I'll actually say, like, oh, I've lost my train of thought. And then Sean's like, we were talking about this. And I was like, great. Natural flow. Wanted to give you as much of that as possible. It is another reason why it's really cool to be in there when we're doing it live. Uh, we announced it on relatively short notice. We will be announcing these uh, with a little more notice going forward. We're kind of scrambling right now uh, as we find the new rhythm. But that's uh that's what's up with that let me you know i've expressed to you how excited i am that sean's here let me give you a little framing on sean so sean is uh, a lifelong science fiction fantasy and comic book fan he's a founding author of the nerds of color.org and a founding organizer of the black comics arts festival uh, he's he's had uh the job of being a professional uh D dungeon master uh, he has done like live action D&D in his day. Uh, he, uh, <laughs> this, this is the fun stuff. And then, uh, he just had completed a uh, senior fellowship with the pop culture collaborative where he studied how fandom power could be used for social good. And we are going to get into that for sure. Uh, Sean is super dynamic. Uh, I love the way his brain works and I'm just so ecstatic. And the people who were there live, like they had a really, it was really, there was electricity in, in afterwards and it was just so much, it was so much fun. Uh, so that's, that's a funny thing is like, uh, I'm really liking this format. Uh, maybe also I've trained myself over the course of decades to enjoy talking into microphones. All right. Without any further ado, cause it's been another long opening. Let's get into the interview. <laughs> All right, uh, Sean, as I tell everybody, this is just a conversation. Uh, you and I luckily have had a conversation before. And in some ways, it's almost going to be like, how much of this can we replicate uh, from what we did before? Uh, the original intention here was for this to be the Sunday morning of the here event. We would do No Pro Live, and our theme, which we hashed out uh, when we talked before, was going to be kind of like, you know, what's next like taking taking the next step moving moving from moving from you know engagement to action um and i kind of feel like i still want us to have that conversation um but of course you know the the world's changed since <laughs> since we had that talk and but, i think it it seems to be almost more prescient now yeah, roll roll with that. So like let's actually start this. So like for folks who don't know you, like give give a little give a little breakdown for like, you know, who you are and what you do. Well, um once again, Sean Taylor, I um I write, I design narratives for people, I consult for different companies. Um a lifelong D and D fan. I made a lot of money in, in, in undergrad DMing campaigns for people. Um, I just love the idea of what story, the potentiality of story, what the story can do for people and what narrative is. I mean, I think that we've looked at narrative so far is just a means to, um, either soft educate or to entertain, but I want to be really, uh, be more intentional about the stories I consult on the, the stories that I put out in the world 
to really invite people to to take action. Yeah, that's I mean, there's that's that's the linchpin. Uh, and I think the, the what I definitely wanted to focus on when we when we got to talk. Um, so for you, what does that mean? What is what is taking action entail? Because I think for like for like a marketer, uh, taking action is simple. I want you to buy a product, but but yeah. you've got a different definition, I bet. I do. I, I mean, I, I'm a person who looks at the world in a pluralistic way and that I don't care about your sex, your race, your gender, your sexuality. What I care about is that we all get what we deserve in the world, which is to be happy, healthy, and loved. And I think story does a really good it does a really good job of being able to either push us towards that or as you see in our public media doing a really good job of alienating us and pushing us away i mean if it wasn't for story i never would have went to undergraduate school or to graduate school and have the whole list of alphabet after my name that i have now i mean it was indiana jones raiders of the lost ark that invited me to go to college i was you know immigrant son in the projects never thought i would ever see the inside of a university and then there was just nothing but magna and summa cum laude's after the one after the other because i got it was literally it was a scene in raiders of the lost ark when the government spooks go to see dr jones and they show him that giant illuminated bible and telling him the story of the ark of the covenant and i'm like you can go to school for that not even understanding that it's fiction right <laughs> <laughs> not even understanding that it's fiction but then end up hello undergraduate degrees in philosophy and religion i mean so it's just like it's just that's just what it was so i think story can provide us with such a wonderful invitation to to engage our world as opposed to where you just applaud and wipe away the memory yeah i always there was um when i was a student at sf state back in the day um there was oh my god i'm gonna forget the name of, i used to i used to know the name of the poet like upside down inside out um oh god Rilke, I think it's Rilke, and there's a section of one of her poems that goes, time comes into it, say it, say it, the universe is made of stories, not of atoms. And that was like inside one of the Muni buses. <laughs> so like, I would see it anytime I got on the 28, and uh, I was just sort of like obsessed with that quote. I was also like obsessed with mythology and, and, and narrative oh, yeah. as a whole, and, and that this whole idea that we're we're shaped by story right i mean i mean there's a very real way like the, the moment the political moment we're in right now is so shaped by story and you can see the relationship clearly between narrative and you know kind of like you know personal or political mythology and how that acts as a filter for reality and how that affects outcomes right I mean, we're watching that in, in dynamic in real time in, in, a, in a core way. And for me, this idea that we shape story, we shape the filters by which people see the world. And when you shape the way someone sees the world, you sort of define what actions they have in front of them. Like the camera. Yeah, like Ro- <laughs> oh, go for it, please. Yeah, like Robert Anton Wilson says, reality is what you can get away with. Yep. And yep. I think that people are getting away with a lot right now because <laughs> how their realities are structured by the stories they choose to receive, they choose to reject. Yeah. Well, and and the and the power of a storyteller, like the power of a of a of a narrative engineer, is that you you understand 
the, the way that toolbox works and start alter, you know, you alter the story, you alter the outcomes, you start working it at that level. And, and some people are natural storytellers, uh, and others, and others kind of learn. So you, you teach a lot. So like, um, <laughs> that sounds like a dumb segue. Um, you're a professor, you, yeah. and, you instruct folks in this stuff. How, how, how do we, how do you, how, when you find people who come to your classes, are they, are they coming with a sort of a, an already built in awareness that like, this is how story works. This is how things in the world change or, or are you sort of opening up people to that possibility and have to kind of bring them along? I guess like, do they seek you out or, or are you finding and shaping? I mean, I think it's a combination of both, but I'm also really intentional about letting them understand where they're already constructing stories in a particular way or how stories are already their lives. I think it's really an arrogant um, move on a lot of professors' parts who are like, I'm going to go in there and teach these newbies. And I don't think that's really, I think that's, that's an ego-centered approach to instruction, which I'm not about. I go in there and say, hey, what do you already know? Now let me bolster what you don't know. And so a lot of the stuff I do is like about media deconstruction. And so they can really see how they're being affected by media. You know, one funny thing I do with the students is to kind of give them a, I make them, all my students uh, uh, keep journals. And I tell them to go to the grocery store. What I want you to do is the next time you go to the grocery store and you check out, look on which side is the magazine and tell me what's directly across from the magazine. And they're like, uh, okay. And they go, they come back. Yeah, these all these magazines telling me I'm no good. And the other side is candy and soda. Of course I'm going to eat that when I'm feeling depressed. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, story just, it operates on multiple levels. And it's, it's manipulating us constantly and you got to figure out how do you want to be manipulated do you want to be manipulated towards justice and equity and inclusion and love and compassion or do you want to be manipulated into self-loathing and hate and tribalism because we can't we're not going to stop being manipulated you just got to mm. figure out which way you want to fall into mm. i like that's a that's a damn good point like even no matter how clever you are like there's there's always these pressures because of the, I mean, I love that. Like that, that's a spatial reasoning problem right there too. It's like the magazines that tell you you're fat and ugly and that you'll never be as famous as Kate Middleton are on one side and the Reese's peanut butter cups are on the other side. It's like yeah. you, you turn your head in shame and what do you find? And that's some, that's some spatial uh, storytelling right there in, in, Absolutely. A real, in a real way. I mean, psycho, like psychogeography and psychoarchitecture are really, and psychodesign are real things. And I think, you know, that's why churches are so huge, because you want to walk in there and feel insignificant. You want to feel like you are a small part of exact universe. I mean, the way things are built, I mean, that's, I, that's why I love, like, a lot of equity and design stuff now. Like, I went to a building, and where was I? Was I in London at the time? I can't remember, but, like, the corners were transparent for people who were hearing impaired. Because normally we know if footsteps are coming around the corner. And we go, oh, there will be, we'll get off our phones and be more aware. But people who are hearing impaired, they had the, so they had like these corners were all transparent so they wouldn't bump into anybody else. I'm like, that is a fantastic innovation. So when you're, ta you're talking about like, you know, not the outer walls, but the inner walls of a corner. The inner walls of the building. Like yeah, if, if I'm taking a left around the corner, that, that corner between the two, like the, the, the vertical and the horizontal axis meet, that's going to be transparent so somebody can see through that and know, either to move closer to the wall or away from the wall to turn the corner, which I thought was masterful. And that tells a story. That company is telling you a story. They're telling we value our employees and our visitors 
who are hearing impaired who may need more visual cues to navigate our environment. That that's an expansive use of of this kind of design, right? That's that's really forward thinking. Have you seen other examples like that, or or or? And I, I want to kind of pivot us a bit towards the immersive and embodied stuff, particularly yeah, as we kind I'm, of landed in there. And there's, I mean, that's so much the same thing. But when I was in Toronto, there is a park that's designed, a co-designed with Yo-Yo Ma, and you're actually walking through a suite of music. The way the park is designed, you're actually walking through. And I'm like, this is the most incredible thing I think I've ever seen in my life. Because I'm like, I don't know anything about classical music, but did I go and research everything I could? Absolutely. Because I'm like, I'm in the park, and I'm looking at like, oh, there's notes here, and there's there's a sweep here, there's a swell here, then it's flat here, and this seems more quiet here than the beginning. And I'm reading the plaque at the end, I was like, that's what just happened. Holy God, like, how was this even, who thought of this? And that was the thing that really, that was, this was decades ago, and this is what really reinvigorated my love, or I'm not reinvigorated, I should say invigorated my love for what we could do with space, what we could do with spaces. What have you sort of been seeing in, in as, as this sort of immersive renaissance kind of like pops back up in terms of people interacting with space and story? Um, what's, what have you, your observations been here? I mean, in part of it, this is not, I mean, and I love this stuff more than I should. I mean, I, I mean I'm obsessed by it. But what I've seen almost, it seems to be like, there seems to be a profound focus on the story but not as much of a focus on what the story can do mm. and mm. that may seem kind of weird but i think it's like you know you go through here you go through here you open this up you go through here you sit there this guy comes out yells at you you follow this guy through the streets and there that's wonderful stuff but it's just like but what is the the aim of it itself like i love immersive but like what's the aim of the narrative itself like, for example, I mean, like, you know, in escape room, escape rooms are wonderful. Me and my daughter, my wife just did one. It's great. But the thing is, like, after, then you, you compete with this other group of people, and then you're kind of done over at Red Door, then you're done. Whereas it would have been so wonderful if, if I got to carry a talisman or something else out that made me take at least one more action. Because usually when you cheer and applaud, you kind of erase the memory. The memory gets replaced by the applause. Whereas there's no way to kind of like embed the feeling, embed the journey in a way where I can recall it equally, like really fast, excuse me. Well, well and then that, that idea, I mean, I, I see some immersive creators, I've seen some immersive creators actually like be become obsessed with the idea of the talisman, but then like not have it do anything but just be self-referential. And that yeah. always feels to me like a missed opportunity. It is. It's like, where's the way forward? You know, what is the, I mean, like I said, and not everybody wants to act after an experience and that's fine, but you are going to get some people who want something more. Like for example, the movie, James Cameron's Avatar. People were literally sitting after the movie, just like, what do I do with my life now? I just entered this world that was so interconnected and radically beautiful. Now, what do I do? And it's just like, like those are the, like those are the, the, the moments that I think we can capitalize, not to, to, to like bully or to cajole, but to like, hey, you have all this energy around this experience. Here are three or four things you can do post experience.
that may help you achieve a, a, you know, maybe we highlight the feeling that you already have, or maybe settle the feeling that you have, and you feel like you've actually had the complete experience. It kind of reminds me of of uh, what might be an apocryphal story about after Star Wars became a big hit, Francis Ford Coppola, as the story goes, told George that he should like form a religion, and George said like, no, 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 and yet, it's forty years on that thing's a religion. Like once the power's been unleashed, there's kind of no stopping it, right? Like there's no stopping it. And if you're also getting, you know, toys and t-shirts and Christmas specials and cartoons and cosplay, it's like you almost, the world becomes a, that world, that fictional world now becomes an extension of your real world or not even, it's not even a mirror world. It's like, it's there. Like you go to Comic-Con, you entered 40 different worlds. Yeah. Or you go to Comic-Con and like, you know, the the fascist troops from, you know, whatever uh, narrative du jour, they're the ones who are providing line security. And yeah. It's like, it's like the multiverse collapsed down and we just got like, you know, the theme park version of it. Um, <laughs> theme park fascism. Yeah. Right, where's your ticket? Where's your ticket? God damn it. Yeah. Well, they they practice that. Uh, they practice that regularly at certain theme parks. Yeah. Um, okay. So, like these these moments of it. So, story story opens us up and and creates these moments. Kind of builds this energy. Uh, you know, what are some of the things? And I know you've you've worked with Pop Culture Collaborative. You know, yeah. on on some stuff. You know, when 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 you're in that think tank and and people are talking about you know how to like drive some action. What, what, what becomes the the action point? What becomes like the the moment after, or the thing that you're that folks are trying to like be driven towards? Uh, that has and has any of that proven to be effective so far? Because I think we're still at this moment where, where the 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 designers and the artists are learning these tools, and mm-hmm. and as they come together with activists, uh, may, maybe not everything's as clear as it could be. Yeah, I mean, so my senior fellowship with the Pop Culture Collaborative was really about tactical fandom. And like, oh, they break that down. Yeah, so basically it's like how we can utilize fandom for social good because the right, and I'll be perfectly blatantly and openly political, I'm not a big fan of Trump and his policies or his followers, but that's a fandom. You know, Obama was the canary in the fandom coal mine, right? Let's just kind of see, you know, policies are kind of okay, but here's this first black president, so he becomes bigger than the policy, and he gets a lot of fans, but it still came down to policy with him, whereas, you know, it'd be towards the end, whereas now with Trump, there's no policy, there's no anything, but there are rabid fans. Yeah. Like, these are people who are like, you know, it's kind of like what, what Henry Jenkins says, you know, fandom is basically, you know, you can teach people to do it, it, you know, doesn't very take a whole lot of intelligence to be a fan. Right, and it's not to say that people are stupid. What I'm saying is the barriers to entry are so low. And if yeah. you speak someone's language who hasn't been spoken to before in that way, or somebody who mirrors um, and amplifies your deepest fears about the other, of course you're going to hitch your 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 cart to it. Because the reason why I think Obama didn't get the same fan service as Trump did because Obama forced you to ask questions, right? He was like, there's, there's an uncertainty there. But when somebody comes to you and tells you something for certain, wrong or not, there's a security yeah. in that certainty. And so with my stuff, with the tactical fandom, it was, 
of what level can we get fans to act towards a more pluralistic society? I mean, people are like, I want to use, use my fandom as a distraction. Distraction from what? <laughs> if right. you want to be distracted, why not try to solve it? And well, not everybody's equipped. I mean, yeah. that's fine. Well, and also, I mean, like, and, and distraction, like, withdrawal is, is a choice. Like, it is an active choice to, like, not participate in society in that fashion and to leave it on autopilot. And it's a, it's, even if it's not, like, even if it's just, like, emotionally too much. Because, like, I mean, like, right now there are definitely days when I just, I look at the stream of everything and I'm just like, Noah, shut Twitter off. Like, walk away because you're going to break yourself if you don't. Um, Absolutely. Th- that, or you're going to find yourself wanting to like get into like a fight with Brad Parscale, uh, Trump's <laughs> campaign manager, which yeah. I was really trying to pick fight yesterday, which I, is not, which is normally not me. Like that's not, not who I am. But they were they were pulling some really cheesy moves, and I was like, I'm going to see if I can get them to tussle. Um, and you find yourself one knowing that sometimes you know, folks have to take themselves out of it to preserve their sanity because we can't Absolutely. because be, we can't be exposed to it full time but then there becomes and we all know folks who like cloister themselves far away from it to the point where they are they are you know disengaged with the the active cycles of of society and and some people are doing that in order to like kind of focus on the eternal maybe you know you think of your monks or like your poets and like okay there's there's some there's value there because if they remain open at least you can touch back to the the deep waters with them but then there's some folks where it's just like oh nope like i'm not i'm not going to engage uh you know in the whole and and i think and that's fine and i think that's great but i think also to when we realize when we don't engage then we become actually increasingly more helpless or more grieved because right now we are experiencing mm. a collective grief yeah. and everybody grieves differently. And that is wonderful. But part of what we have to do is, you know, there's like, you know, the five stages of grief and there's an article going around, going around now that the sixth stage of grief is meaning making. Right. Mm. So what meaning right now are going to, are we going to make for this moment? And that's why I really believe right now is the time because, you know, I've read, I've read, too much science fiction for this moment, <laughs> right? I've read Atwood, I've read Butler. And so is it, are we going to go Handmaid's Tale or are we going to go Parables of the Sower? But I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to go Roddenberry, right? We are, right. We're going to play, like, this is a Roddenberry moment now. This is where we're at, at our collective low. Because this is like, this is, this COVID-19 shows us that we are radically interconnected. Absolutely. And right. And so then the question is like, how are we going to radically in our interconnectedness, move past this moment. This may be as recurrent as the California wildfire. You know, this yeah. may be a part of our reality now. The question is, what do we do? I mean, we can do small things. You know, I'm, you know, I'm a one guy. I've been reading stories on Facebook Live so parents can have a break, <laughs> you know, just yeah. so they can have 15, 20 minute break. You know, I've been writing affirmations in like, leaving them out on the streets of the Bay Area. When so we're watching, find the envelope, pick it up and read it and hopefully feel better for the day. Yeah. And we're watching like mutual aid efforts come through and, and, you know, 
GoFundMe's role as like the de facto health provider of America has carried forward now to being like what's carrying on rent and and folks like there are folks who are like, you know, like, oh, what do you mean you can just do a rent strike? Like like all that stuff is starting to stir and people are starting to be aware of like you know, things like, oh, well, they've just, they've halted mortgage payments, but the landlords still expect money, but the landlord's mortgage payment is like suspended. So like, why are we, and like every question is sort of laid bare, but we are operating in these spheres of fandom, right? And 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 that's fandom tactics. You didn't like the way somebody died on a show. I'm going to, I'm going to go. I mean, for, you know, this prime example was Ghost in the Shell. You didn't like, you didn't like Scarlett Johansson being Asian character you know what we're going to use your meme generator against you to show how horrible this is and that tanked the movie i mean and same thing with like these landlords are getting exposed because wait a minute you're pretending for something but you aren't being held to the same standard so let's actually expose this landlord and get him out there get her out there and then let's figure out how to do it and you're right there's so many people there who are you know learning these tactics from fans because there's nobody more radically organized than fans because it's instantaneous. It's like, okay, boom, from Tumblr to Twitter to the showrunner, boom, done. And I think that's what's been so great about tactical fandom is that people are being able to use these tools that everybody has in their pocket. You know, my, my phone has more computing power than the Viking space mission, you know, and I'm sitting there using it for, you know, dumb stuff. But then I realized that, wait a minute, you know, like when we organize a voter drive after, you know, a couple of years ago when Black Panther came out, it was like, you know what? People in this particular neighborhood don't even vote. How would I organize, you know, if I was going to organize a protest against, you know, I hate the way Book was portrayed on Serenity, you know, on Firefly, but wait a minute, what if I did the same thing for voting? Because I think a lot of times as fans, we utilize what we have to rail against something, to battle, being reactive. But when we could be responsive or proactive, I think that's an underutilized use of our of our the political will and fandom. Well, let's, let's dive in a little here into like the the tactical aspects and maybe even what I sometimes perceive is like the limitations. Because like I'm thinking right now as we talk about this, I'm thinking about how you know the 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 standing of politics has sort of come to full fruition in this cycle, and the camps never seem as far apart. And what what policy wise might be, you know, chunks of daylight, maybe even like large stretches of daylight, but you never even know that there's, that there's, that there's daylight or a field between the two camps because the walls get raised up so high that they, that it's, it, there's these purity tests that seem to happen for like everyone in every, in, in every walled garden of, of on family. either side of the aisle. On either side, <laughs> on either yeah. side of the spectrum, all along the spectrum, there's always this: how political are you? And I think that's why so many people are getting, because the stories are so rigid. There's this not choose your own adventure, mm. right? These are the Ten Commandments in stone now. Yes, that's so I thought. So I think people get so turned off. I was like, what do you mean? I can't be both. Like I can't have a. I, I can't be conflicted. No, you can't, because you have to choose a side, which is like right. a sort of really toxic orthodoxy that I think is really. You know, in policy, let's get real. Policy is wonderful and great for people who think on that level. But if you can't wrap your policy in a wonderful story, nobody's going to give a shit.
Okay, so I I definitely like had to detract from the conversation uh, in order to deal with that, and so I've lost our place in things. Or talking about nuance and the inability, <laughs> the the lack of that in our current discourse. But we can switch it back to what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, let's actually let's 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 um let's push let's push in uh let's push in there. So, um, because. I think we were going in a, in a good direction. Uh, so we'll kind of just like rolling it back. Okay. So everyone, <laughs> everyone's listening live. You may hear some stuff that you already heard. One of the things that I tend to find uh, when I look at the kind of the, the, the way people interact online. Uh, and one of the things that actually frustrates me about online tools is, is the bandwidth is so narrow for any individual person. And yet there's in terms of going out, and yet there's so much coming in. There's this like asymmetrical set of information. And some of it is emotionally encoded and some of it is intellectually encoded. And Sean, as someone who 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 has a, a pluralistic mindset, what does that structure sort of do to us as 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 people? And I think that you know the, the lens of fandom gives us kind of kind of the the, the tools to see how that works. Like fandom is definitely the bleeding edge of how we socially organize. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's something, I mean, I keep going back to what Douglas Rushkoff was talking about, uh, present shock, mm. where we just have, where everything just happens now. There's no way to reflect. There's no way to absorb it because it's happening constantly. It kind of reminds me of my friends who are doing deep psychiatric work talking about that, you know, we should probably take the P off the PTSD and it's just traumatic stress in it because there's no post if you're still being affected by it. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so those are the things that I keep thinking about, like this thing happens now. And I think he calls it, uh, oh, narrative collapse is what Douglas Hirschkopf calls it, where all the stories seem to be falling apart. And now we're just kind of left with like impression and energy and feeling. Yep. There's no arc. There's just like getting punched. Yep. And, and, and so that's what, I mean, those are the self-defense tactics that we need to avoid. I think so. I think that's what, I think that's what, um, like shipping and a lot of those deep fandom practices, like, you know, um, I'm going blank on what I'm thinking about now. Oh, fan, not fan casting. Where you, um, the fans write the work. Oh, oh my God. Uh, yeah, no, no, it's, uh, my brain. Just, just, I mean, look, off, but... my brain, like every all of, like all of, like you know, fiction, fan fiction, fan fiction, fan fiction, uh, Jesus. Because yes. you know no, why? No, you no, know no, why? No. Because we want to say slash fiction, and we know we're not supposed to say <laughs> slash fiction because it's not <laughs> slash fiction. It's, it's fan not. fiction as a whole. Slash fiction. fiction is a part of it, right? But, 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 fan, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway. but I think fan fiction is almost like a an antibody toward narrative that we find discomfort, that we that we don't find very valuable, or we find offensive or or, or, or uncomfortable. I mm. think that what fan fiction does is, I think that's why. I think that's why the Watchmen on HBO did such a good job. It's like, it didn't change anything. It gave us a broader vision of that world. So I think Watchmen was like probably the best fan fiction ever. Yeah. Well, and I thought of it, I mean, I agree. And then looking at the way fan fiction interacts with these bigger, you know, franchises, sometimes I'm, I'm like aware of, or, or, you know, particularly like in my beloved Star Wars, seeing like the, the schisms in fandom over, over the the reorganization, I I think of what it must have been like, and this is a little grandiose, to you know 
be a Christian around the time of the Council of you know, Nicaea. Nicaea. You know, <laughs> yeah. and it's it's like, oh, we're just gonna we're you know we're gonna say, oh, what you've been reading doesn't matter anymore. It's just these four books are the only four books that are canon now. And you're like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, no, to hell with you. I need. I need my Kip Turan, you know, whatever the hell, you know. And canon is such a such a dangerous thing, anyway. Oh yeah. The canon, I mean, outside of just Star Wars, like Star Wars, I mean, has something I like. Has there been more in depth world building than in Star Wars? I mean, it's just like I didn't. I'm not a big fan of the movies, but the extended universe, the books, I would devour those things. Like, there's yeah. a whole like there's like the the the. the there's all these things like there's these criminals out here there's this and i'm like this is incredible but i think what people i think what people hate though because there's there's two things there's two types of fans right and of course there's gradients i don't want to be binary but there's the fans that treat the the canon as a sandbox and then there's those who treat it as a forest mm. and the sandbox people's like nope you can't come in here these are my toys go fuck yourself then you have people who treat like a forest like okay i'll go in I'm going to explore. That's new. That's new. Never saw that before. Let me consider that. Whoa. And then you have, then you decide whether or not the forest is for you. And so the, 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 the sandbox fans just have to kind of go because they're like these people who just are so ossified in, if they don't even like the material, I would argue. They like the way the material made them, felt, made them feel at a particular moment in time. It's almost like, I think it's like, it's like, it's like trauma in a way where something affected you and you got stuck in that time. And so when you get pulled at that time, that time gets pulled to you, you can't see a way out. So you respond in a way that's probably maladapted. Whereas people who are on the other side who to see the things as like, okay, my thing that I love, my canon, if you will, is a dynamic living entity. Are people who are going to be less because the people who see it as a dynamic living entity, they're going to be more willing to understand the changes that people accuse of social justice warrioring. I mean, like, if you're not a social justice warrior, what are you, a freaking fascist? Like, what's the opposite of social justice warrior? Like, all these, what's the opposite? But yeah. so for me, it's just like I try to look at my fandom as I didn't create any of this. I've spent money on it, I've enjoyed it. And if it no longer fits my values, I don't complain. I leave. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, what's funny about fandom compared to a religion is in a religion, you have the option of rejecting a sex canon. Um, and if I, if I say that wrong, it's really funny. Uh, <laughs> and, and establishing your own and saying, no, like in, in this house, we don't, we don't pay attention to those books or in this house, we have the Nag Hammandi library to draw from. Or if you get really big, no, in this house, there was another prophet, you know, like a, a new word came down later. The story's not done yet. Uh, and there's a, the reorganization and realignment. And I mean, this is how humanity's always been with our stories. And it feels like there's, you know, the, the, the need to keep things um, neat and tidy and producing, generating profit are at odds in some ways with this very human impulse to explore the multiverse of possibilities. I want to rein this in to participatory narrative and 
and the dynamics and, and I think role-playing games kind of come into this, but also, uh, surely, you know, with immersive narratives that are interactive and that are participatory, how does something like, uh, you know, uh, D and D, how does something like a alternate reality game mesh with these issues of tactical fandom when there's even more agency given over to the audience who stop becoming just audience and become co-creators? I mean, because for me, it's, I would like to, I mean, for me, it's like, I would like to see more uh, feedback in immersive spaces. Like, I, w I would like to have my choices, if, you know, if I'm allowed to make choices, questioned a little bit. Like, I went to the void and did the uh, uh, Jumanji thing. And it was this cool, it was an amazing AR experience, or VR experience, pardon me. It was, it was absolutely amazing. But it was like, I could just kind of act a fool. I didn't feel stakes. I didn't feel challenged. I just felt like I could just kind of act really nilly. And I think in some of these spaces, you know, there's a lot of people who are doing, you know, who are really incorporating this now. But I would love to see more of like, challenge my assumptions about the environment. Mm. Challenge me for my decision that I made. What's the feedback? What's the value system at work right here? Is it in alignment? Is it convergent or divergent with the values that I hold? Those are the things I think that we can start informing people. This is once, once again, it's, like it's all manipulation. We have to be honest about that. Well, you're gonna manipulate them towards the, you know, this side or that side. And so I would love to see more of, of like if I'm, in, if I'm in an immersive space, I just don't sometimes, you know, let's take the Museum of Ice Cream as an example. Nothing about that gives me gives me anything other than consumerism and cavities and diabetes. And it tastes great and it's fun, but there's nothing in it that challenges me. In a haunted house, I'm being scared. And so I'm reacting. I would love to see uh, immersive spaces built more around um, proaction and response. Mm. So it's measured and considered and intellectualized as opposed to, oh, I got to do that. That popped up here. I got to jump over there. That jumped in front of me here. I got to jump back there. It's like, those are all great and wonderful, but it's like, where is the challenge? Where is the value system at play? Those are the things to me that that's what interests me. And not that I want to take the fun out of anything. Absolutely right. not. What I want to do is like figure out that fun just doesn't have to be empty calories. Right. I mean, my favorite type of movie is a mind fuck, you know? Like I, I love, I mean, my favorite moments in, in cinema are when everything turns inside out and upside down. And that often sets up when, when the movie's really good, it'll set up a dilemma down the road because you just so clearly delineate the value systems that are at work and yeah. you start to give people, and, and that's a luxury. Like that's the thing that like cinema or epic storytelling does that reality doesn't usually do for us, which is make the choices really stark, but still add some emotional weight to it, right? Like, the, you know, any moment where a character rejects the path and then kind of falls back into their normal day-to-day -day routine, thinking of the Matrix right now, right? He's like, oh, nope, yeah. I'm out of here, gonna go back to work, just a guy, but like, but he's not just a guy. He gets, he gets drugged back in. Morpheus mm -hmm. is, you know, FedEx is him a phone, you know? Um, <laughs> but that's also, once again, that's also falling back on an established canon, which is, which is Campbell's hero's journey. Right. Right. And so 
And that's still looking at Western modes of storytelling. You know, you have African modes of storytelling from griots and things that are like, you know, like double helix storytelling. That things are happening on multiple levels at the same time. There aren't just a way spot like call to adventure, meet the mentor, things like that. I mean, I know that that's been very profitable for Hollywood for a very long time, but I would love to see more native folks. I mean, we're on native land. I would love to see more native storytelling involved in. I think I would, I honestly believe that immersive work with native communities, with other communities, could do a lot to heal. Mm. It kind of reminds me of like the Asclepian in ancient Greece, right? Where you walk through the hallway, they'd be whispering to you, you walk in, you're going to be okay, you're going to be okay. And your mind actually becomes accustomed to wanting to be okay. Mm. You know, so both of, I, mean, I think we could use this immersive for so much. I mean, you, we're using VR for therapy for soldiers and for people with PTSD and the rest. I would love to see, we could use immersive, I, I really believe that we could do that for pluralism for transgenerationalism, for polysexism. I think we can do these, these, these things, or polysexuality, pardon me. I think we can do all these things. I think immersive is literally, for me, I would, I'll say this and I will defend it and I will go to the map anybody who wants to argue with me, but I believe immersive spaces are the new church. And I just don't think we've seen the full potential of what that actually means. No, I dig. I mean, I've, I... You know, when I was a teenager, I was very much into the 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 notion that as a as a culture, America didn't have an initiation an initiatory right. We kind of had them. We had little things, you know, like there was something, you know, any given you know branch of America might you know like you, you might have a bar or bat mitzvah, you know, if you're Jewish, you yeah. Know, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's different rights for like you being, you know, initiated into the the community as an adult. Uh, but the closest you got in America was your driver's test, if you were lucky your enough. Your first to have drink. A car, your your first kiss, your first drink, drink. Uh, and and registering for selective service, <laughs> and maybe going Possibly to college. voting. Yeah, voting and maybe, but that's it. But there was no ritual, no right, no pomp no. and circumstance for certain. It was just literally it was you forged in bureaucracy, right? You know, yeah. it's like my jury summons, right? You know, like- Or commerce. Or commerce, yeah. And 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 just completely devoid of story. And I I do think, I do wonder sometimes, like, you know, can we, I mean, one, sometimes I wonder, like, can we, you know, bring more elements of, of the world's culture, you know, together to kind of a kaleidoscope of perspective that's on one side of things and and on the on the initiatory side of things like i was really into this idea that you know we needed spaces for that and i think that's one of the things that motivates my own interest in immersive and particularly immersive spaces and immersive experiences this idea of initiation of of going from one way of seeing the world to another way of seeing the world through sort of a tiered structured set of revelations and that can be done fully in a narrative sense um but because those tools are there right and literally the point you mentioned the jumanji one the jumanji one's interesting in the void because they're starting to play with the idea that the different people the different roles see different things 
mm-hmm. and I've seen a, a couple of designers start to play with this, the fact that you've got four or more people in a shared space, but they're, they're not, they don't have to be all fed the same information exactly. Mm-hmm. And thus you can kind of do the, you know, blind men with an elephant thing. And you can actually have people like, you know, see different things and thus actually get the fuller sense of what reality is. And that's really, I think, cool and valuable. Or on the converse, you can do the Rashaman thing where 12 people see the exact same thing, but they're going to have 12 different experiences. Right. Right. No, I think, I mean, there's, I mean, I think you can do both. And I think what you're, what you're saying is really powerful to me about the idea of ritual and initiation, not to get too occult and esoteric, but which is my wheelhouse. Um, I think that's to me why I think chaos magic principles infused into immersive spaces, I think could do a lot for the creators and for the people going through those spaces. For those who aren't up on what chaos magic is, uh, could you give like a a short definition? Because some people, they're going to think it's like D&D, like (laughs) right? And which is is not what it is at all. So maybe you could like explain that. Yeah, so chaos magic, well, first of all, it, 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 it has its roots with like Austin, Austin Spare and Genesis P. Orridge and John D. and all these old occultists. But the reality is it's really about how do you affect the environment through your force of will? You know, it's, 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 it's will times imagination plus focus equals a result. And right. people have their own ways of doing chaos magic. And for me, it's really about changing belief paradigms where I can get multiple answers to the same question. And that's really why I use chaos magic um, force for me. It's almost like a divination tool, not to like turn anybody off. And I don't mean it as like seeing the future. I mean, it's like, how do I radically connect it to my now? Right. How do you, how do you divide, like, how do you kind of clear your mind and focus and, and kind of, you know, divine your own intent, right? Or divine the intent of something else around me or divine right. the fact that, maybe my initial first three thoughts were based on trauma and fear and mm. habit. And then when I, when I apply the chaos principles, okay, so it's kind of like, so let me change it. So those of you who are, you know, intellectuals, go to university or whatever, think about it as inter, um, interdisciplinary studies, where if you have a car accident, a psychologist is going to go, huh, I wonder what was the state of mind of the driver. A physicist is going to go, I wonder what the road can, you know, I wonder what the, the, the tire grip to road ratio was. Uh, a sociologist was going to, would be like, oh, I wonder how everybody, you know, was this at uh, drive time or was it off drive time peak? You know, an economist is going to go, how much is this shit going to cost? I mean, so being able to look at the same thing through multiple belief systems. I, mean, I grew up a cradle Catholic. But who have, you know, but whose parents and grandparents and cousins practice obia in Jamaica, which is like a voodoo analog. And so it's kind of like being able to like look at certain things and through all of those different lenses to, to come up with, uh, you're never going to have an objective truth, but you're going to have a functional truth. And that's why I think what's important for, for with chaos magic in these spaces. I like, I like that line. You're never going to have an objective truth, but you're going to have a functional one. And, and it, it, for me, that's one of the things that I think that when you get into the nonlinear storytelling modes of immersive and when you're building an immersive space that can facilitate nonlinear stories, um, 
can, can f facilitate lots and lots of stories, but nevertheless, because it's physicalized, there are some things that those, that those installation just won't do and some things that they will do. Like yeah. a slide is a slide, you know, uh, like it's gonna, it's gonna, you're, it's either going to be easy to go down or hard to go up. And like, those mm -hmm. are the two things you can do with it. But like within those two things you can do with it, you can work a lot of metaphor into that. And depending yeah. on what, intellectual or religious or emotional psychological discipline you bring to bear on playing with that slide, you can get a lot of different effects out of it. Yes, and, um, I think we ha and we have to be understanding that every time we walk into a space, we are bringing something to it. Mm. Every time we walk anywhere, we are bringing whatever we had, whatever we have into that space. And so we have to really be honest with ourselves that that's going to color the way that we look at things. Well, and, like and, and, and as a designer, like you have to know that your participants, your audience are bringing that baggage. How, how, yeah. how, do, how do you prepare for that? Yeah. How are you going to have like my baggage, your baggage? And we expect that, you know, I have garbage bags, you have Gucci, the fuck? Like, how is that even going to work? Like we have to be, you know, so it's like we're bringing all that into the same space. It's kind of like me, I'm a huge romantic. I, I didn't think I was a really huge romantic, but I was looking at my favorite movies. All of them had a hint of romance in them. Like, you know, I love the, before sunset movies like i would you know those are movies like wow they're really just walking around falling in love talking but that to me speaks to my value because i'm bringing that to that and so it amplifies so if, so if i'm bringing hate and ignorance into a space that amplifies hate and ignorance i'm going to be a superhuman hate and ignorant person mm. well, that's that's a really interesting way of approaching it's like thinking of the things that that folks are building spaces and stories as as amplifiers as in some ways yeah they are echo chambers and mm -hmm. building that resonance back up although i did just get little flashes of like cobra commander and destro <laughs> like, you know, like 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 resonance chamber yeah i can't do destro so i, I won't i won't try and do a dialogue with you everyone has a co everyone has a commander no one has a destro i don't even remember what destro sounds like just like vaguely vaguely bass voice yeah very very deep voice yeah, very very good. articulate yeah, yeah. i mean yeah. And those are things that it's kind of like, even that like we could even even that though i just remember like i could be at a, i can be at a certain room with certain people and i can say in knowing's half the battle and all of us would be triggered a different way Somebody right. will yell, G.I. or if somebody will laugh, or I mean, like, because like, we have all of this cognitive and cultural embedding from all the pop culture that we've, that we've consumed over our years, right? Right. And so even a part of that, whether it's, I mean, people think, you know, it's just popular culture. Popular culture is the B side of religion. It has, like, you know, all the influence, but none of the, none of the inquisition, yeah. right? And so you know, we're, and we're holding that. And so when we walk through the world, it's not just what we're getting from religion, it's what we're getting from other creations. And so we are, our, our mind matrix, our mind heart matrix are made up by so many other contributors. And so to think that we are walking into spaces wholly as who we are and not acknowledge that we are the sum total of all of our influences, it is, it's baffling to me. And I think that that's what really good spaces do. I think, I mean, we're, I remember, you know, last year we did a D&D &D campaign to capitalize on Wakanda. I was like, you know what? Let me get some of my more my, my black friends in the role-playing game. And so we got to role-play in Wakanda using D&D &D five rules. And they were just like, wait a minute. This is incredible. I know therapists right now 
and you know, not to be that hipster guy, but I was doing this a long time ago, back when I was in social services, but people who are now introducing role-playing games into the therapy session. There are people who are like school therapists who are taking kids in school in their resource classes, i.e. the kids are in trouble, and bringing them to immersive spaces to shake up their their reality tunnel. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we t- when the marketing term is an activation, right? Yeah. And it hit me just now that, you know, we talk about, when marketers talk about, it's like, okay, we're activating this brand. How am I going to activate Cavassier, right? You know, like I need to activate Mercedes-Benz. But the, the thing that's being activated in an activation is you. Absolutely. It, right? And so what are you putting in the space to activate the participant? And who what? are you activating? Who are you activating? What is this some Manchurian candidate shit? Like, right? No, like, who are you igniting? Well, and like, yeah, and like, we contain multitudes. Like, which aspect of of the person are they igniting? Right. I mean, because what's so crazy is that, like, you know, I'll just use uh, archaic terms, but how incels are activated, right? That Mm -hmm. same energy could be activated towards somebody who's very chivalrous without the um, gender based connotation to it. Right. They have some of the same ideas, the same, you know, one is just a mirror universe values of the other. Well, and I think there's a, I think there's a big thing there about, you know, seeding the territory, right? Yeah. Like if you, if you have progressive pluralistic values and you seed this area, and so look, I mean, like step, step back into like the chaos magic zone, right? And like getting a little bit political here, but like it is known that, uh, one of one of um, and apologies because we're going there. That one of Putin's favorite um, advisors, people, you know, media guys. Uh, he's very much into like the old occult forms. He's into chaos. You know, he's into studying chaos magic. They're into Evola. They're into all this stuff that goes down some pretty you dark, twisted modes of it. And I don't mean yeah, that Steve in the Bannon, sense. Of, I mean shit. Steve, yes, yeah, Steve Bannon. I mean these these folks. They they run inside the same you know kind of uh, kind of new agey type circles, and they're doing kind of the left hand path version of it. And I think that can often make people like step away from that work and go like, oh man. I mean, and you get you know like you get into the spaces where you're talking about neurolinguistic programming, and you know you might be reading a book by Doug Rushkoff, who is very much on our and I, you know, we, we all know that I'm progressive very much on our side of, of, of mm-hmm. the aisle, but like, that's also what Tony Robbins does. And that dude mm-hmm. is like, you know, is, is basically Gordon Gecko, right? So like greed <laughs> is very good over there. Um, and, and, but there's this, this instinct to like, you kind of shy away from the tool. And yet, like, I look at it as a tool, a pencil is a pencil, a knife is a knife, right? Mm-hmm. One right, one writes, one cuts. Um, if we there there are some biases like the bias of something like neurolinguistic programming is to shape someone's actions the the bias of something like a chaos magic practice is to first shape your actions and intent and then to shape the world around you right you know it's not neutral um but it doesn't necessarily have a, a sectional allegiance but when you walk away from those tools 
you cede the power of those tools only to the people who are using them. I mean, I mean that's definitional, right? But no, I, I mean, that's, I think yeah. that's absolutely true. Yeah. I just get worried about watching watching folks who maybe want to have positive outcomes for everybody, um, you know, walk away from certain tools because they see who else is, you know, using them. They, they see who else is playing those games. And yet, at the same time, I know that those games must be played. Oh, right? I just turned down a fairly significant amount of money with, uh, we'll say, a progressive group who wanted to do this pretty large um, activation, we'll say, in Oakland. Mm. I live in the Bay Area. So yeah. I was on there, and and because I was questioning, you know, they, they wanted to be so righteous that they cut off all their fingers, basically. Mm. I'm like, you can't be so righteous that you actually reject the tools that are available to you so you cannot be like that person. I mean, look, you can use a hammer to fix a house or bang somebody's head in. What do you want to do with the hammer? The yeah. hammer is neutral. Your intent, your actions while holding the hammer is what gives it its power. Right. And so these, and they're like, we can't that's what they do on that side i'm like right now there's no side except for human sides and so if you really didn't want to make this healing stuff that you said you wanted to do you got to do these certain types of things and i can't get it's an nda so i can't get into too much right. depth. but and i just i quit i was like you know what i'll honor the nda i'll take what you take but i i rejected quite a sum of money because for me it's just like why are you doing this then are you doing it to reinforce your progressive street cred or are you doing it because you want to actually help you? Because those things are in complete conflict. Yeah. Well, there's this idea, I mean, it sort of gets back to, there's some, some of the things around like ideological purity, but Ugh, you know, yeah. there's a, there's a little bit around, you know, you got to get your hands dirty, but I think, I think the, the more important kind of note and it kind of echoes with, you know, kind of where Rushkoff is these days, you know, it's, you know, the teams are human. It's like it, Rushkoff frames everything that he's doing as a team human, which was his last book yeah. in his current project, right? So there's there's team human, and then like by definition, then the other team is like team not human. And <laughs> are we are we are we outcomes uh, and cogs in the Dow Jones Industrial Average machine, or are we people? Does the economy serve people, or do people serve the economy? And and that that seems to be the thing that's been the topic du jour this week, what has been clearly revealed through the actions of what's going on, but taking, yeah. taking that step further, like, you know, w you know, we are all by definition, you know, we're, we're human. Like, like there's, there's yeah. no, there's no escaping that you can serve mammon. If you want, and I, said, well, I wasn't going to go there, but look what you're, I got to what you were talking at the beginning of the thing. And remember, <laughs> here's the thing the, for everyone who knows, and you could probably at this point, you're like, oh my God, Sean, you know, I've gone to weird spaces. Like the reason why we're having this conversation is because last year, Sean brought up chaos magic on the stage and I was like, oh boy, someone did it and it wasn't me. Um, so like, mm -hmm. like we were informed by our Rushkoffs and our Grant Morrisons and like our, our generations in nerditry looking for what are the things that like shape the culture from, 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 from the, the, the underground spaces, right? And what and, will shape the culture going forward? And and have and a shape the culture. Thing, like, yeah. Yeah. In this moment now, everybody who's listening right now, I recognize some names and I'm a fan of some of their work. It's like, you are all culture shapers. 
in whichever way you choose to approach this. And so then you got to figure out what aspect of culture am I shaping and what, and what are going to be my receipts for that aspect mm. of culture I shape. Yeah. I, and that's, that's the biggest thing for me in like getting this idea of like, you know, what comes next in the action, right. You know, or, 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 you know, what's, what's the after you get out of the, get out of the room and what's the after, what is the call to action? How do we move from, you know, attention to engagement, from engagement to action, and maybe from action to attachment, if attachment's where we want to go. Or, or to embodiment. Mm, yeah. Like, yeah. how do I have this stuff sit in me in a way where I can then mm. either going to be a part of my life or it's going to become a warning of how I don't want to live? Depending on what the information is, depending on what the, the yeah. whole experience feeling is. And so, yeah. I mean, I love what, you know, things are doing. I mean, I think that people who are using, like, like Michael Tara Garbers, I think she's doing wonderful stuff. Like, the, like her, her thinking around this stuff is so advanced and beautiful. I mean, so, I mean, like, when we think about the ideas of, you know, for me, like, I'm always going to think about equity because I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about a, a, you know, Jamaican Puerto Rican kid from Brooklyn in a project who never saw himself in literature and TV until he was an, an adult. In, in, a, in a real way, right? So my whole thing is when I, when I design story, if I help design uh, activation or a walkthrough or whatever, I'm always gonna figure out who needs to be seen in this. I try to remove my ego from it and figure out who footsteps will I serve walking through this place or experiencing this thing. And that, that has been a profound shift in how I create because normally I'm like, I'm like Willy Wonka in my head, like, oh, I'm going to create this. Oh, this is going to be so great. But like, that's just masturbation, which is great for yourself. But the, but the reality is I am creating things for people out there in the world who are going to be affected by the thing that I create. And they're going to go to spaces with, my, with that influence on them. So what do I want that influence to be? Do I just want to be like, oh, I saw something really cool and knowing my friends can't go see it because they live in different states or whatever. Or don't want to be like, look, I learned this crazy ass lesson. What do you think? Mm. Yeah, there's 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 a responsibility that comes with unlocking this this power, right? Like, yeah, and 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 it feels kind of you know ridiculous and up our own asses sometimes to talk about it that way. But when even when it's something as ridiculous as you know watching grown men cry in in Star Wars Land. I, who was, you know, a grown man who cried in Star Wars Land, before then started taking my grown men friends to go have them cry for the same reasons, <laughs> you know, and, be, and becoming our own little, I mean, honestly, getting a lightsaber is now like, a, you know, a, a middle-aged Star Wars nerd's uh, last rite of passage. It's like, congratulations, you are now a fully functional adult male. You've, you've built a toy <laughs> lightsaber, you know. Uh, Anthony's listening right now, so I know he he, he definitely knows what he's talking about, and, and Zay will listen to this later. Um, but these, 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 there's that, there's a, there's a massive power, right. To move people like that. And, and then once you've moved them much like the, like, like your example of the tabloids and the candy, you've moved someone. What are they imprinting on next? What's the next thing they see? Do they see one thing? Do they see a choice? You know, like what if what if we what if we looked at the tabloid and then turned over and there was Reese's and kale chips? Yeah. I would still get the Reese's, but some people would get the kale chips. You know? Or what if there wasn't food at all? What if there was if you're feeling sad, call this number? 
Yeah. Or, or maybe a card with a, with a discount for headspace, which I would yeah. gladly have because I like headspace, but it's expensive. So, expensive. Uh... No. I mean, and those, and those are the small things. Cause I mean, it's like when you create something for someone to experience, a piece of your intent is with that person forever whether it's blatant in their lives or subconscious in their lives, that part is with them. And so what are you putting out in the world? What do you want people to carry of yours? How do you want them to utilize your thought, your intent, your action, your affection? And those are the questions that I'm, I, I ask myself constantly. Every time I sit down to create something, I'm like, okay, what do I want to leave with a person? Because a good time is a good time. I, mean, I can have a good time shooting pool hmm. with some friends, but like if I'm going to go and spend X amount of money to walk through, you know, 3,200 square feet of whatever it is, I want to, I want to be able to like have something I can walk out with and go that profoundly changed how I get down. Like I went to, I mean, I'll tell you one of the that like wrecked me in a good way was I did a, a ghost walk about three years ago in San Francisco. And the person telling the story, she was just a phenomenal storyteller. And it just, you know, there's like maybe 30 of us on this walk. And she did such a good job of ensuring that this giant group was included in every single step of the way. And she was leading us through and making sure that, you know, shoulder, shoulder touches and all these things. And it made me think about, not about ghosts, but about how much history is lost on a daily basis. Mm. And so that experience of taking that ghost walk invited me to start an oral history project, the elders of my family, so we can't lose their story. Because she was preserving the history of Knob Hill in San Francisco through the stories that she was telling. And those are the type of things. It doesn't have to be in a explicit invitation, but there should be something somehow embedded to activate somebody to take to take a risk, take a chance to take an action or something or otherwise. I mean, I question why do we do it? I mean, entertainment is fine. I'm pro-entertainment. Trust me. I mean, I'm every entertainment system you could possibly have. I'm sitting looking at it right now in my living room. Pro-entertainment. But in this new world that we're in right now, where we just saw how radically interconnected we are, how fragile we are, how resilient we are, how we're seeing movies uh, and activations backlogged or pushed out for two or more years. What is going to be our new, what's going to be the Phoenix story of this time? And how are we going to help each other rise in this time? And I say that intentionally. I'm the type of guy who wants to see everybody win. Not like, you know, in a very non-hateful way. I don't want, I don't want the hate right. people to win. But I want to see right. everybody win and be loved and, and make it. And so if I can start crafting art and story and activations for that and help make that happen, that's what I'm going to do. I'm, I've had to, I scrapped two projects since the shelter in place and redesigning them both because I think it's, it's people are going to need a different type of entertainment after this happens. Well, and that's, and that, that's our next big question. And some of that we're going to get into probably on uh, the, the town hall on Saturday. So uh, we've been at this for an hour. I know you got to go pick up a cake. Uh, uh, you mentioned this before. You got to go brave the outside world. So 
Sean, how, and then maybe just maybe you might, if, if there's time, we'll do like a little post roll uh, thing for folks. Uh, and if people have any questions, I, I got about, another, you know, if people, if people have questions, that'd be great too. Yeah. So I think we, here's what we're going to do. We'll, we'll, Sean, just for the, for the sake of the podcast part, where can people find you? I'm on, I'm on Twitter at, at Real Love Punk. I'm also at I'm a dad WTF.net and uh, Sean Taylor.net. All right. Now, what we'll do now is uh, so, Sean, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah. Once again, I want to thank Sean Taylor for being our guest on the show today. Um, we are still getting used to the format. Uh, so like the first half, uh, you know, uh, we were using one recording method. The second half, we're using a different recording method. And I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what's going to be best here. So nothing, nothing is uh, ideal yet. But thank you for bearing with us as we uh, kick the tires on the tack and see what it is we can see. And uh, we're going to keep on moving forward as best we can. Uh, you can find uh, links to Sean's uh, stuff in uh, the show notes, uh, which will accompany this. Um, there's also um, uh, some some books Sean brought up in a discussion afterwards. Uh, I'll put those in the the show notes as well for folks, uh, which will be like a lot of a lot of fun, like recommended reading, uh, which we can all use right now, I imagine. Although, like, I gotta admit, like, I've been trying to read some books and uh, my brain just like fries. Um, maybe, maybe after this week, <laughs> maybe after this weekend, I've been telling myself that for months now. Anyway, even before all this went down, um, what's next on the agenda? Uh, we are gonna do some more of these. Uh, we will tend to announce them ahead of time. Uh, we are going to try and record some stuff uh, over the here weekend so that those will be available. Uh, will we succeed? I don't know. Uh, we're still, again, figuring out uh, how to do all this. Uh, it was unplanned, but um, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, you, gotta, you roll with the punches and you see where you land. And in a lot of ways, uh, you know, we're landing on our feet most of the time. There is so much work being compiled right now um, uh, over th in the, uh, the the now playing uh, indoor kids uh, section of the uh, website. Uh, another edition of that newsletter will be going out uh, today, I think. Uh, we are trying to do a bunch of here stuff, so uh, I'm falling a little bit behind. So probably more like tonight is when I'll manage to like get that fired off. We'll be working behind the scenes on it as other things happen. Uh, I gotta, in fact, uh, in a minute here, I gotta train some people on how to use some of the tricks for Discord. Discord really does give us a lot of power, so um, in terms of what we can do. So I've been super impressed with it. And indeed, I think I mentioned this before, uh, regretting the fact that we weren't using it already. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. Although, I will also admit, I still prefer um, I still prefer sitting down across from someone uh, and uh, well, talking to a microphone because uh, there's just so much that happens. If nothing else, you can read someone's body language. You know they they want to talk. Uh, so it's it's a it's a hell of a lot easier for me staring into space to just keep on running my mouth. Um, after all, I do that all the time here. <laughs> you are well aware of that fact. Okay, um, let's. Uh, I forgot to do the sustaining backers at the beginning of the show. Uh, again, I'm a little out of sorts. And sometimes the sustaining backers, uh, 
sometimes they don't make it this far. So they're like, hey, I didn't hear my name. I was like, yeah, well, you didn't make it through the episode. I know. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I'm not mad at you for not making it through the episode. Um, but in case you didn't, here's where you are. Uh, the sustaining backers of No Persinium are Mark Baltazar, Ian Budman, Paul F. Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, Sidney Guillory, Jeremy Charles Hahn, and Brittany. Thank you all so much for keeping us alive. Um, that's it for the episode. The music, of course, is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. You can find everything we do at nopersinium.com. Check us out on the No Pro Slack, bit.ly slash noproslack will get you to the NoPro Slack sign up setup. Uh, and then um, the Discord, uh, if you want access, uh, DM me once you get into the Slack. So kind of kind of get through to get get into this little speakeasy we're running inside of our weird little borough inside of our giant city. Uh, you got to know a guy. Luckily, you know a guy. Uh, that'd be me. You can also know Catherine. She, she, she has the power. So um, <laughs> she'll appreciate it. Okay, uh, so probably I just be. What did you just whisper? I'm like, oh, um, I miss you. I miss all of you. I miss seeing you. Um, but we do this until we don't have to do it anymore. So that's the way it goes. All right, I just got melancholy. So, um, what did I? Gosh, I don't. I had a sign off last week, and I was like super happy with it. Uh, and now I don't remember what it was. Okay. So, um, go imagine I said that sign off. Um, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll go listen to last week's episode and figure out what the sign off is supposed to be. I'll write it down. Literally, that's it. There's, there's a sign. There's, there'll be the music and then there's, there's stuff afterwards. Bye. Yeah. Well, and, and, there, and there's, there's, there's no code switching between someone, someone, or, or, or it feels like people can't identify which modes people are in, right? Like sometimes I'll go out and I'll drop something off in, in social media. And when I, when I compose it, I'm like, okay, this, this is, this is, this is more poetics than policy, right? Like I'm talking principle here and I'm gonna drop something. Cause like, I think aphoristically, and so that's what I what I do, and I and I kind of tend to talk to values, and then some of the folks I know who are like really policy minded, they start like going in on that, and they're like, well, you're you're not mentioning this, you're not mentioning that, and it's like, whoa, can you not, you know, like I I I didn't write a bullet point talking point memo here, I wrote four lines, and I think some of that comes to the fact that the velocity of the tools by which we are communicating with each other leave no room for nuance or depth. And then that's no. a major accelerator here. And it's also our...